0: The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, Pastor and Elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We saw in the verses nine through, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter nine, verses one through ten. We saw, and actually all the way through verse fourteen, we saw that Christ's sacrifice serves us by granting us a, a guilt-free conscience, a clean conscience. The The immeasurable gift of a clean conscience is given through Jesus' sacrifice because his sacrifice removes the guilt of our sin. How can that be? Well, because he was punished in our place. And so we no longer bear the guilt of the sins that we've committed, rather they now are upon, laid upon Christ, and now we can have our conscience cleansed. And there really is, if you've experienced it, there's nothing like a clean conscience, is there? Just everything is sweeter in life when you have a clean conscience. I could speak from experience. And Jesus Christ is the one who gives us that clean conscience, and he delivers us, he cleanses us from dead works. So when you have a burdened conscience, you inherently know that you've sinned against God. You could claim to be an atheist. You know you've sinned, and... You know that your conscience is burdened, you've done what is wrong, and you will make attempts to try to atone for that guilt, whether it's through philanthropy, whether it's being nice to your neighbor, whether it's trying to do certain things that you think will appease God or appease your God, whatever it is, your conscience is bearing witness to you that you need a clean conscience, you need to have it cleansed, and so you'll do these various things in order to relieve your conscience, and the Bible calls those dead works, because your guilt can never be erased. You're still guilty for your sin. You need someone to come along and bear that guilt for you, and that's what Jesus does, and therefore you have a guilt-free, cleansed conscience, and is truly a blessing. And that was really the argument of verses 1 through 14 in Hebrews chapter 9. In our passage for today, we're going to focus on more spiritual blessings, if you can imagine it. There are more spiritual blessings that flow out of Jesus' sacrifice, and we're going to focus on five of them, and I'm not trying to make it five every time. If you've been paying attention, it's been like five blessings and five elements, and I'm not trying to do that on purpose, it's just coming out of the text. And so today, we're going to consider five life-giving accomplishments of Christ's death on the, uh, on the cross, five life-giving accomplishments of Christ's death on the cross. But like I said, if you're visiting us for the first time, if you are not a believer or you're religious, but you don't know what to think about this Christianity, or at least the way it's presented out of the Bible, I want to speak to you for a minute. Uh, because if you're just checking out Christianity, all this talk about sacrifices and animal sacrifices and bloodletting, it might be a little off-putting to you. You might think that this practice of animal sacrifice, we've had to talk a lot about it because it's the Old Testament background, background to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You might think that all of this practice of animal sacrifice is an ancient, unenlightened method of appeasing fickle tribal deities, and you scoff at such nonsense because we've clearly advanced beyond that kind of thing and that outmoded way of thinking. And we no longer embrace that sort of thing that has been reflected in these ancient cultures that had to offer blood sacrifices and you're all you you've been the last week or so or even today you're going to hear all about more blood sacrifice you're going to be wondering what is this all about this just we are so past this as a society <laughs> and you'd be you'd be right to to note that the world over most places don't offer most places are not uh, most cultures are not offering blood sacrifices animal sacrifices but you do still find it in the pockets of the world believe it or not You look it up, it doesn't take long. You can find certain cultures still practicing animal sacrifices. But the practice of animal sacrifice in Israel, though it was in some ways similar to their pagan neighbors, similar in that they were both offering animals as sacrifice, Israel's sacrifice of animals was markedly different than the sacrifice that was being offered by their pagan neighbors. And the reason for that is because anim, uh, the, the requirement for Israel to offer animal sacrifices was actually tied historically and theologically to the very beginning of time. When God created the heavens and the earth and he created man and woman in his own image and they fell into sin, Adam had been told prior to that falling into sin that if they ate from, if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And it wasn't an idle threat. God had promised that if they ate from a particular tree, an actual real-life tree, among all the abundance that they had been given to eat and enjoy, in fact, that was the first commandment, you may enjoy all of this uh, abundance of the creation, just remain away from and do not eat this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, as Adam was told, if you do to eat from that tree, you will die. And he certainly did. It wasn't an idle threat. Death was the consequence for his disobedience. And that should make a stop for just a minute, I think. I don't think we think about this enough. That death was imposed for Adam's sin, okay? Now, why death? You ever thought about that? Why death? Well, the only way you experience the enjoyments of this life is through life, right? And through death, all of that is taken away everything that a person enjoys on earth is through the gift of life and death ends that enjoyment god kept his promise to adam he wasn't making an idle threat when he did eat death set in immediately and you might say well no it didn't because he didn't die physically no he didn't die physically not immediately at least but he did die spiritually as you see in how he responded to his sin. He took of the fruit and ate, then uh, Eve had already eaten, and so together they sinned against God. And the moment they sinned, they realized they were naked. And rather than crying out to God and asking for forgiveness, they tried to cover their sin, and that's what sinful humankind has been doing ever since then. So they tried to cover their sin their own way. They covered themselves with loin coverings. They realized they were naked. But then when God went to Adam, he was hiding from God. That's an indication that he had died spiritually spiritually. And then when he confronted Adam, Adam didn't fess up, he actually began to blame his wife for what had happened. So clearly he had died spiritually, and then some eight centuries later he died physically, as every other person who came from Adam and Eve would do. Every human being, except two, Enoch and Elijah, have died. And Enoch and Elijah would have died a natural death had they allowed to live the rest of their Life. And it's very likely that God actually took those two to heaven to indicate that death is not the ultimate victor. That Enoch was taken to heaven before he died and Elijah was taken to heaven before he dies to show that not everyone dies. See, the first part of Genesis from chapter 5 onward is to demonstrate that everyone dies. But Enoch gets taken and then later Elijah gets taken to show that no, not everyone dies. In fact, even in the Old Testament, some people can be brought back to life. And so death is not the final victor. God will have victory over death. But this historical background of what happened in the garden with the taking of the fruit and then death setting in, and then death being the pattern from Adam and Eve onward, I bring up all of that to help us understand what's going on in Israel's sacrificial system. Death was the penalty for sin you sin you die we have sinned you must die if you want fellowship with God then you must have a substitute to die in your place and I think it's kind of hard for us to fully grasp this we don't live in an agrarian society most if not all of us are not ranchers last time I checked maybe you're a rancher you just came in today well welcome you're welcome to be with us But I'm not a rancher. I didn't grow up on a ranch, and so I don't know how this goes. I wasn't around animals who were used for food. Maybe you were growing up, and so you have a little bit of an idea. But most of us don't have an idea of what this would have been like in Israel, all this bloodletting. The sacrificial system would have been quite quite grotesque, and we have to just face up to this. We're so removed from from it that we don't really get this. We read about blood sacrifices, and we're like, yeah, whatever, right? We don't really we don't really grasp it. But it would have been grotesque. And the sights and the smells, especially the smells, would have reminded the Israelites on a regular basis that death was required for their sin. It would have always been gross. It would have never been pleasant. You just would have eventually gotten used to it. That's all. It was never pleasant. The slaughter and the bloodletting of animals out in the open, for sacrifice, would have never been pleasant at all. Why? Because Israel needed a graphic picture of what sin requires. It requires the death of the sinner. And if the sinner's not going to die, someone's got to die, right? And in Israel's case, it was the animals. Everyone in Israel deserved death for their sin and for Adam's sin, and the only way they could maintain fellowship with God and find forgiveness of their sin is if someone died in their place. And you know, I, 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 just, I think that people the world over just intuitively know this, right? Where, where, did, where did these sacrificial systems and these other pagan religions come from? Well, it could be the case that humans just intuitively know that there, there needs to be appeasement for their sins that they've committed. And, and so these things developed in other cultures as well. Like I've already mentioned, people's consciences bear witness to them today, even in societies that are far removed from these ancient societies that have had animal sacrifice. People con- people's consciences testify to them even today, even now, that they have sinned, that they have done wrong, and they try to appease that conscience in different ways. Well, the point of taking us back to Genesis was simply to give us the context of Israel's sacrificial system and that the, all this blood and death in Israel's Religious life, it wasn't arbitrary. And it wasn't the requirement of some bloodthirsty Middle Eastern tribal God. That's the way that Israel's religion has been characterized or caricatured, you could say, by some scholars, a lot of scholars, quite honestly. From the very beginning of our existence, from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, death has been the just penalty for sin. It's what we deserve. And if you want to avoid death, you need someone to die in your place. In Israel, under the Old Covenant, the animals died over and over and over and over. In the New Covenant, Jesus died once. And he died once and for all for his people in their place. Now, I I take all this time to detail some of these things because even these ideas are being challenged among professing evangelicals. We don't like the idea that Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place. Well, he did, and that is actually the very heart of the gospel, as we'll see. Now, as we work our way through this text, it's going to be verses 15 through 18. As we work our way through the text, I want you to see that death, the word death, and the word blood, they're used interchangeably. They mean the same thing, Really? If blood is taken from an animal or a human, that animal or human must die, just by nature, right? We'd all agree with that. Leviticus 17.11 even says this, as God is is instructing Israel for how they're to conduct their sacrificial system. Leviticus 17.11 said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. So the, by God making blood the primary feature of the sacrificial system, and it was the primary feature. It was the primary feature. There was always blood everywhere, okay? Blood everywhere all the time. By doing that, by making blood the primary feature of the sacrificial system, God gave Israel and us a graphic picture that death is required for sin. So when you see blood here or the shedding of blood, it just... You could just think death, that's what it's referring to, death, blood, death, it's all the same, it's all synonymous. Now, if we think all of that talk of blood or all of those things is very barbaric and uncivilized, it's because we don't really grasp how horrible sin is. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that professing evangelicals who have an allergy to these kinds of teachings, they have an allergic reaction because they haven't fully grasped the holiness of God and how horrible our sin is. And if all of this talk about sacrifice and blood and the penalty of sin, if all that sounds barbaric and uncivilized, it might be because you haven't fully come to terms with how terrible your sin is against a holy God. It is so evil to sin against a holy and good God that he must impose a penalty upon sinners that eventually removes them from this world. That's why death, that sinner must be removed from this world that God has created because they've sinned against the living God. It's only when we see our sin in light of God's holiness that substitutionary sacrifices make sense. That's the only way it makes sense. It doesn't make sense to some scholars because they haven't rightly understood their sin in light of God's holiness. If the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to you this morning, then I would encourage you to meditate on the magnitude of your sin in light of a blazingly holy and unswervingly righteous God. And when you start to see your sin that way, then the cross of Christ starts to make a lot more sense because he needed to die in your place and he did it out of love for sinners. In fact, when you begin to recognize your sin in the light of God's holiness, Jesus is, Cross knows no longer foolish. It is now power to you. In fact, it's food and drink to your soul. Some of us are going to get to experience that even today. It's just—it just so happens we didn't plan it this way. It just so happens that we're talking about this text and we're having communion today. The gospel becoming food and drink to your soul. This idea of Christ's death and in His blood on the cross—things that sounded just almost pagan to you before—are now actually beautiful to you. It's power to you. It's glorious to you. It's forgiveness. To you. it's food and drink to your soul why because you see that the death of christ is the perfect payment for your sin that accomplishes eternal blessings for you and one of those eternal blessings is seen in verses 15 through 17 if you're following along in the the bulletin here we see that the first blessing we find in this passage is that christ's death is a death that purchases an eternal inheritance it's a death that purchases an eternal inheritance. That's verses 15 through 17. He begins by saying, therefore, and you can't skip over that, ver- uh, that word because he's tying us back to the last few verses where he talked about Christ's sacrifice cleansing our conscience. Jesus' work on the cross cleanses us from the guilt that we have acquired because of our sin and gives us a clean conscience. We don't need to go about a ton of religious rituals anymore to be forgiven of our sins or to have our guilt wiped away. Even religious rituals that God himself established in the Old Covenant, you don't need that anymore. Because what, Christ, what Christ has done and how that affects our conscience and cleanses our conscience. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover all sin from all time for all of his people, never to been, be brought back again. And therefore, verse 15, he is a mediator of a new covenant, a refreshing, relieving new covenant right you know you wonder why 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 is the old testament you know so much bigger than the new testament i think it's to to build up the anticipation so that when finally the new testament comes you're like ah no more rituals right no more bloodletting we have a mediator of a new covenant what is a mediator a mediator is someone who manages a reconciliation and a relationship between two people who are presently at odds And that's exactly who Jesus is. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, as we just had Pastor Bob read. And Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. He is the one who is now bringing together God's people with a perfect sacrifice and redeems God's people from slavery to sin and slavery from the fear of death, as we saw in chapter 2, and purchases for them an eternal inheritance. That's why we're talking about grace, grace. This is all grace. Grace. This is not something that you accomplished on your own or I accomplished on my own. This is all grace. He redeems us, it says here. Verse 15, so that those who are called, that's believers, in a sovereign way, God calls his people to himself, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. It's not for all people, it's for those who are called. Why? Since, this is the reason, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what has Christ done? He has secured for us an eternal inheritance. See, inheritances are only for the children. If we would have grown up in a uh, slave culture like Israel knew or other countries have known, or even our own country has known, you would know that the slave is not entitled to an inheritance. They're a slave. Only the children of your owner would have received inheritance. You weren't entitled to any kind of inheritance. Now in Christ, we are made sons of God, and now we have the lawful, rightful, uh, we are able to now receive that inheritance lawfully. It belongs to us. Why? Because Jesus purchased it for us. A death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I think that statement about being redeemed out of the transgressions of the first covenant refers specifically to the Jews of this time who were actually making that transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. They needed to know that Jesus' death redeems them from the sins committed under that old covenant. I don't think it's referring to us, us 21st 21st century Gentiles, we did not make that transition from the Old to New Covenant like these Jews did. These Jews were transitioning, and so they needed to hear that Christ's death redeemed them from the transgressions they committed under uh, under the Old Covenant. And what that is implying is that the Old Covenant never actually dealt with their sin. Never actually was effectual for the forgiveness of their sin, and this is made explicit in chapter 10, verse 4, as we'll see next week. You can look over there briefly verse 4 of chapter 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. It can't happen. That's why you need to be redeemed from those sins, Jewish believers. That's why you need to be redeemed from those sins that you committed under that first covenant because that first covenant can't provide forgiveness for your sins. It can't take it away. Only Jesus can. Well, he goes on to continue to talk about this theme of inheritance and he's going to give us a a bit of an illustration here to help us understand it he says in verse 16 for where a will is involved the death of one who made it must be established and that word for will there is the same word for covenant in fact in the new american standard you'll just find that the word covenant is just used all the way through so covenant in verse 15 covenant in verse 16 where i would say for where a covenant is involved i think the esv is justified by using the word will here because the, that word can mean both things, and here he's clearly referring to a will that someone writes for their family so that that family can inherit something after they die. He can, they can inherit his property after they die, and that's how wills typically work, right? You write a will, you have children, you create a will so that upon your death they would inherit something. But... It's not until your death, actually, that they do get that inheritance. So a death must be effected, or it must take place, or it must be established. That's verse 16. Verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And so that's just, that's just basic law 101. You understand that a will, once it's established, can't be effected, and the, the children can't receive the inheritance until the death of the one who wrote the will. And that's pretty straightforward. I think we get that. In the same way, Christ needed to first die in order to secure his people's inheritance. And in dying, Jesus secured our legal rights to our eternal inheritance. How could he do that? Well, that's going to be the point of the next section. How did he accomplish that wonderful blessing? And just let's speak for a moment about what that inheritance is for some of us may be confused or just in the dark. What is this inheritance that I've received in Christ? You've received God himself. You've received Christ himself. And then you've received everything else in existence. That's all. Just everything. What's your inheritance? Everything. Literally everything. God and everything else. A new heavens, a new earth, an entire universe. Everything. Everything. That's your inheritance by grace it was not earned it was written in the covenant for you and then enacted by Jesus Christ purchased by Jesus Christ by his death on the cross how can that happen that's the next section the death Jesus death is a death that provides the forgiveness of sins this is verses 18 through 22 Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So the point is, is that you needed death in the old covenant and you needed death in the new covenant. Because in both cases, under the old covenant and under the new covenant, God's people couldn't receive their inheritance unless a death occurred. Why? Because you needed someone to die in your place. You needed that substitute because death was required for your sin. That principle is the same in the Old and the New Testament. Israel's inheritance was the promised land. But that was just a picture of our future inheritance, which is not just the promised land, but everything. Everything in Israel, therefore, as he goes on to say, in order for Israel to receive their inheritance, everything in Israel needed to be purified with blood, including the people, which is what Pastor Bob was writing or reading uh, earlier in Out of Exodus. And look at here in uh, the next section, starting in verse 19. It says, in Hebrews, it says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, that's what Pastor Bob read, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The reason why everything was splattered with blood Right. Again, we just don't fully grasp this because this is not the culture that we live in. But it was blood everywhere. And the reason why everything in Israel was splattered and covered in some way with blood, including the people, was because they needed to have their sins forgiven. And you can't have forgiveness of sins in the Old or New Covenant without the shedding of blood. It's not possible. Why? Because death is required for sin. It's very simple, really. You can't have forgiveness of sins without a substitutionary death. It's a principle that holds true in the Old Covenant. It's a principle that holds true in the New Covenant. And it's been in place ever since Adam and Eve sinned. You can't have forgiveness unless someone dies in your place. And that's been the argument from Hebrews chapter 7 Until now, and it will continue to be the argument. You might be thinking, why? Why all this continual repetitive reminding that we need Christ's substitutionary death in our place and that He has accomplished it in our place? Why? Well, because for one reason, I think because we're prone to forget it, honestly. And so we need to be constantly reminded, and that's all that's happening here. The author of Hebrews is just trying to paint a glorious picture of all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf so that we will not be tempted to drift away from it as these Jewish believers were, and so that we will go to battle for our own souls and remind ourselves as we are tempted with our own sin to become despairing that, to be reminded that Christ has accomplished all for us. So that our sins might be forgiven. The difference between Jesus' new covenant and the old covenant is that Jesus shed his blood once, just once, only once, 2,000 years ago. It's been settled. So here's the logical order between these two sections that we've looked at We've sinned, we deserve death. Christ dies in our place, our sins are forgiven, therefore, we become the legal recipients. Of an eternal inheritance, an eternal an eternal inheritance that includes everything. How much sin is forgiven? Just a reminder from Colossians two thirteen. Paul now saying, "Quote and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." I did some deep research into that word "all." You know what it means? It means all. <laughs> All of your sin, from the moment you came into existence to the day that you trusted Christ and every day after that, all of your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Why? Because you're righteous? No, because Christ is. Why? Because you've accomplished something? No, because Christ has accomplished everything. And that's a relief. So Jesus' death is a death that purchases an eternal inheritance. It's a death that provides the forgiveness of sin, but it's also a death that purifies the true holy places. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, that's referring to the tabernacle or the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We've talked about this idea of, of copies before, and I, I, just, I just love to, to think of different ways to illustrate this. When I was growing up, I had these really cool die-cast metal airplanes, and they were just, I mean, they were as close as the original as you could get, except for they were a lot smaller and they didn't have the engines and the actual working missiles and everything else, but, you know, pretty, pretty close. I mean, they, that's the way they were made. They are meant to be an exact copy Of the F-14 Comcat. That's the one I had. It had the movable wings. It was sweet. And it was heavy, it had nice weight to it, but it was very small. And it wasn't the real thing, right? But if you would have come along and said, because you know I loved airplanes back then, if you would have come along and said, Derek, that's just a copy, here's the real thing, I would have like, Whoa, that is the real thing, right? I'm standing right next to the 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 flight deck on some aircraft carrier or something like that. transported there I don't know how but that would, that was my dream back in the day and there I am with with the real F14 Tomcat and they said Derek you can have this F14 the real one if you give up the, the little one I would have tossed that one into the ocean and then I'd taken the real one because all that I had that little one was just it was just a copy that's all it was it was not the real thing and that's the argument that the author of Hebrews has been trying to make that the old covenant was merely a copy all the all the elements of the tabernacle, all the elements of the temple, just a copy. A very small copy, but a copy, nevertheless, it wasn't the real thing. The real thing was heaven itself. And so it was fitting that this copy, right, would be cleansed and purified through sacrifices. That makes sense. But that also the real thing needed to be uh, purified with better sacrifices than these, and that's what he Uh, says here. That's what Christ, uh, Christ has done. He has purified the true holy place, which is heaven itself. That's all he's trying to say. Heaven itself is the true holy place. When God commanded Moses to craft that tabernacle, it was merely a copy of what was really in heaven. Now what does it mean that Christ purified the true holy place? I do not take this to mean that God's heavenly dwelling needs any kind of purification, as though it's intrinsically defiled. That would be blasphemy. So I don't take him to mean that. And not only that, but even in Israel's tabernacle, there was nothing inherently impure about the tabernacle itself. They're just inanimate objects, right? What needed to be purified? The people did. So the only way we can have entrance into God's presence and for him to be for us rather than against us against us is for us to be purified and and that entrance to be purified so to speak and so that's what Jesus has done and now he appears before God on our behalf with that perfect sacrifice so that now we can enter 24 7 365 days of the year we can enter into God's presence and make our requests and have fellowship with him because it's his death is a death that purifies the true holy places Well, it's also a death that permanently puts sin away, puts it away for good. This is wonderful. This is verses 25 through 26 now. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice sacrifice of himself. He did not need to... Sacrifice himself repeatedly. One of the most wonderful aspects of Jesus' sacrifice is that he accomplished everything for our right standing with God. He accomplished everything the moment he died. It is finished. Full stop. Once and for all, your salvation was accomplished once and for all outside of you, historically. Completely. And therefore, Jesus no longer needs to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Constant sacrifice is not necessary. Because the infinite incarnate Son of God's sacrifice is so sufficient that it covered all the sin for all of God's people for all eternity. And I use this illustration, but I've fallen in love with it. I'm going to continue to use it. When it comes to Christ's sacrifice for our sins... We must, in the sufficiency of his sacrifice for our sins, we must see his sacrifice as Mount Everest, and our sin is but a grain of sand at the foot of that mountain. It is covered so infinitely, so perfectly, so completely, that there's no longer even a comparison. So you can go to God freely. Your sins have been forgiven The once for all, the the emphasis on the once for all nature of Christ's sacrifice is to convince you that you no longer carry the burden of your sins upon your soul. The guilt is gone. It's been covered. And the tense choice is deliberate. Covered. Not presently being covered. Jesus isn't covering your sin, He's covered it. One of the primary ways that Jesus' sacrifice is distinguished from the Old Covenant sacrifices is by its permanence. Our sins have been put away for good, never to return. God has put them behind his back, never to look at them again. He separates our sins from us as far as east is from the west. We can't say it enough. I'm going to keep saying it. On the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for all your sin, all of it. All of your sin has been forgiven at the cross. Do you want me to say it again? (laughs) See, some of us walk around with a nagging lack of assurance because we have certain sins that have been challenging to overcome, certain sins that are hard to forget. We tend to forget what Jesus has done, the richness of it. And so I'm beginning, the more I'm a pastor, the more I understand why these things are constantly repeated in the Bible. It's because I need it all the time, and so do you. Now, I was trying to think about how to illustrate this once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice, and so I'm going I'm to give it a shot here and see what you think. But think about it. If you're a kid, you can put yourself as the kid in this illustration. If you're uh, uh, an, an adult, but without children, just you can remember back when you were a kid, and if you're a parent, then you're the parent in this illustration. But let's say... You've got your uh, children, and, and one of your children is in charge of a uh, closet full of toys, okay? It's, your, it's the play closet, and that's where you get all your toys out, and it's it needs to be nice and organized so you know where everything is, and then it gets taken out and gets put away and shut and, and all that. And as the kids grow older, it, the smaller, more kid-like toys are replaced with more, more old types of toys and so on. But you get the idea, so that's just... A closet where all the entertainment is kept, games and toys and so on. And one of your children is in, is in charge of that closet. They've gotten old enough now where they can be in charge of it, and they're to keep it clean uh, and organized all the time. All the time. That's the requirement. They mess it up. They've got to clean it up. Okay? Pretty straightforward. Well, your child who's in charge of that, they've got a, uh, um, a plan to go to a friend's house for a long day of fun. Okay, they've been looking forward to it for a long time. It's one of their best friends. They're going to do all kinds of fun stuff, running around, playing. It's going to be great, and they're really looking forward to it. But they have to have that closet cleaned up before they are allowed to go. All right, day, comes, day rolls around. you said, okay, it's got to be clean, or you can't go. Listen to my voice. You're about to leave. In two hours, the closet has to be cleaned. Okay, well, guess what? They lollygag, they procrastinate. The time has come for them to go to their friend's house. The dad and the friend have pulled up to the driveway. They're getting ready to go. And you remind them, you cannot go until the closet's cleaned up. And you can just see their face. They know it's going to take at least two to three hours to do that. And they are just devastated. They can't go now. But then you say, I will clean it for you. Because it must be cleaned or you can't go. I will clean it for you. And they relief comes over their face and they go enjoy time with their friend, entirely by grace. Your justice was fulfilled because it had to be cleaned and you cleaned it. It was clean and so they were able to go. But had you not done that, they would have not been able to attend and go to their uh, friend's house. Well, The permanence of it in in Jesus' case here, the permanence is that your friend or your, your son or your child comes back and they still know that the next time they go to a friend's house, they have to have that closet clean. And miracle of miracles, you've been able to locate some sort of AI robot, I don't know, who keeps the closet permanently clean at all times. You've got these nice organizers and whatever you've got in there, I don't know. It's an illustration. And so the child now, in order to go to be with their friends, you say, you still have, this still has to be clean. The closet must be clean before you can go. And so the next day comes along and they're gonna, the next week comes along and they're gonna go spend time with their friend. And you ask them, is the closet clean? And they look and they say, the closet's clean. Then you can go be with your friend. Did they clean the closet? Nope. But the closet is permanently clean. And so therefore they can legally go and be with their friends, according to the law of your household. Well, that's my attempt to help us to see the permanence of Christ's sacrifice. You, the, you need to have your sins forgiven in order to receive that internal inheritance. Your sins need to be given in order to enjoy a clean conscience. You look to Christ. Are your sins forgiven? They're forgiven. Are they forgiven for good? They're forgiven for good. Every time you look, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Every time, nothing changes. Why? Because the permanence of Christ's sacrifice. Because Christ has put away sin for all eternity for his people, we are now ready for his return. And that's this last section. It's a death that prepares Christ's people for his return. It says, that Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will, offer, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Interestingly, the author prefaces that statement, or that's this section, with a statement about human death. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I, w- I have to admit that it's not immediate- it wasn't immediately clear to me how that's connected with Jesus' death how is it that it's appointed for man to die once and then he says so christ right so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him well let's take it piece by piece it's it's clear that god is appointed for every human born of woman every human period in this world must die and when we die, the next event on the redemptive timetable is judgment. That's what that verse is teaching. You die, then judgment. Now, I believe this judgment is referring not to the moment you die, but to what comes next in terms of redemptive history. So when you die and you're in Christ, you go immediately to heaven. That's a clear teaching of Scripture. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Okay. So you go immediately to heaven, and if you die outside of Christ, you go immediately to a place of eternal judgment called hell. However, that's not the end, believe it or not. For both groups of people, there's going to come a time at a final judgment where both groups are raised from the dead to receive their eternal inheritance. For believers, it will be an eternal inheritance of glory and joy with God forever and ever. And for those who are outside of Christ, it will be an eternal inheritance of nothing but judgment. I believe that's the judgment that's being referred to here, the, the, the judgment that's next on the redemptive timeline, which means then that he's making a warning here that we'll touch on in a moment, but he's making a warning here that the moment that you die, that's the last opportunity you have to get right with God. Because the next time you see Jesus, it will be, as your judge it's destined for man to die once just once and then comes judgment and so I think that's what he's talking about here but Christ is also a human who is born into this world wasn't he right the eternal son of God became truly man and was born into this world and therefore must also die and I think that's now how it's tied in that's how he's tying these things together but in his death he also just died once You are all going to die once. I'm going to die once. Jesus also died once, and he did to offer himself as a sacrifice for many. That's how it's tied together. And when he will appear again, it will be again for judgment. For God's people, the judgment will be salvation. And for those who are not God's people, the judgment will be eternal condemnation. So in Christ, now we have... Because of this once-for-all sacrifice where he's borne all of our sins and he's not coming back to do anything about sins, namely he won't be coming back to sacrifice himself, that's been all taken care of. He comes a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting his return. And you can only be eagerly awaiting his, his, his return if you are convinced that on the cross he has paid for all your sins. How do you eagerly await the return of Christ unless you know in your soul that he has borne all of your guilt? And so it is a death that prepares us for Christ's return. And so I have two points of application today. One for the unbeliever and one for the believer. And that one for the believer has two parts. So let me just speak to anyone here today who is outside of Jesus Christ. And you know it. Okay, You're visiting you just you you say I'm not a Christian and I know it okay the author of hebrews has given you a very loving warning this morning and the warning is simply this that after death you have no more opportunities to get right with god and the implication then is is don't delay man i just i just shudder when i look back upon my life prior to my salvation I would just be like, I'm going to get right with God when I'm out of college, when I'm married, when I got kids, when, whatever it was. Had the Lord taken me any time before then, I would, have, I would have been in judgment because I didn't know Christ. And it just, it just, I just, the chills run through. When I meditate on that, I'm just frightened because it's just terrifying to think what could have happened. My exhortation to you in the exhortation of the, the book of Hebrews is do not delay. Just by reading the news, you should be aware of the fact that none of us has tomorrow guaranteed. Not one of us. And the point of, that the author of Hebrews is making is that after that happens, there's no more opportunities to get right with God. Reincarnation, it's a lie. It's a myth. It's not true. You will go to judgment, and that will be your last opportunity to get right with God. But the beauty of what he has been arguing here is that you have a Savior who calls out to you and says, I've accomplished it all. I've accomplished accomplished all that you need to be saved, so come to me. And you should go to Christ and trust in him, even today. As I've been explaining it, the, the it's, very, it's very simple. It's so simple a child can gra- grasp it. You've sinned. You deserve death. Christ died in your place. He was raised again so that you can be raised again to life. If you trust in him, your sins will be forgiven. It's that simple in terms of its message. If we believe in him, if we turn from our sin, if we turn from living for ourselves and just living for our own glory and look to Jesus Christ, we'll be forgiven of our sins. This is the grace of God. We'll become the rightful heirs of an eternal inheritance. Just imagine that. Going from slave status to son status, slave status to child status, no inheritance to an eternal inheritance accomplished completely outside of you on your behalf apart from any of your works. That's the grace of God. But just, just a reminder, it will cost you everything. Jesus says, come to me, and he expects that you come completely to him and embrace him. What about for the believer? Well, this may seem a little counterintuitive, but let me explain it to you. I think one of the applications of this passage is missions. Missions. Maybe thinking, what are you talking about? Well, just think about it for a second. In Israel, they had a very elaborate sacrificial system. Everything pertaining to worship of the one true God, remember God revealed himself only to Israel, everything pertaining to the one true God was found in Israel, and more specifically in Jerusalem, and more specifically than that, in the temple. If you wanted to worship the one true God, you had to go through a sacrificial system with all the priests. As Israel was wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they needed to bring along with themselves a massive sacrificial system set up, you could say. This huge setup that needed to be set up and tore down and set up and tore down. That was cumbersome. And you know what that hinders? Worldwide evangelism, quite honestly. Just think if you had to go from nation to nation setting that up. That's going to be challenging. See, in Israel, it was a come and see evangelism. God was establishing Israel, giving it prosperity, giving it the temple, giving it wise kings so that people would come and see the one true God and stand back like the, the, the uh, queen from Ethiopia, stand back and be like, wow, this is amazing. Who is your God? That's come and see. That's not where we're at anymore. The new covenant evangelism is go and tell. You don't need a priesthood or a sacrificial system or a tabernacle anymore. All you need, all you need for someone to come into right relationship with the creator of the universe, you don't need to be in a church building, you don't need to be in a temple, you don't need to be anywhere specific, and you don't need to have anything along with you, like an elaborate tabernacle. All you need is a message. That's all you need. You can walk out here today, Out of this building, you don't need to be in this building, you can walk out you can meet someone, and you can share with them the message of the gospel, and the moment they believe it, they come in right relationship with God, able to worship God right then and there, in that moment. So actually, the new covenant frees us up in significant ways to do missions. Because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, salvation can happen anywhere at any time when a person believes in Christ for the forgiveness of sins so now it's go and tell and it's simple you don't you don't need anything you just need a message that's it and you've got it so Christ's once for all sacrifice now enables missions and then finally the sufficiency of christ's sacrifice the aim of this passage and the next passage in the next chapter is to pound into our heads that christ's sacrifice is dealt for our sins once and for all And we need to be continually reminded of this truth so that we can eagerly await Christ's return. Some of us don't because some of us are burdened by our sins and we don't know how to deal with them. We can only anticipate Christ's return with eagerness if we are settled in our minds that Christ has provided a once-for-all sacrifice and paid for all of our sins and nothing more needs to be added. Not even my giving, not even my faithful attendance at church, not even my Bible reading. As important as those things are, none of those things are, can be added or need to be added to Christ's sacrifice. Some of us are living with a burdened conscience. We have our sin ever before us and some of our consciences are more sensitive than others. And the way that conscience grows and the way that your conscience is soothed is not by attempting religious rituals, even Christian practices, but it's to go to Christ and be reminded and have this truth applied to our hearts and minds over and over. Christ has paid for all of our sin, full stop. I am the legal recipient of an eternal inheritance. My sins, though many, though great, are covered by the death of Christ. What's the message of this passage for us today? the message is for us to see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and to help that uproot even the sin in our life, even sin that you're afraid to admit, sin that you're afraid to confess. See, here's what's interesting. When you begin to see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, it doesn't cause you to bear your sins. The more and more that you're you're comfortable with God and with God's holiness, because you know you've been forgiven, the more and more you can just expose your sin. You just expose your sin to him. You're not afraid. That sin can't condemn you anymore. It can't judge you, it can condemn you to hell anymore. So you can just freely confess it to God. You can even freely confess it to others. The more and more you see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, the more and more you're actually able to deal rightly with sin. And so that's the encouragement and aim of this passage. Forsake your sin and embrace the once-for-all work of Christ on the cross and enjoy the pleasure of a good conscience as you eagerly await your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this amazing message. Almost sometimes it's, it seems too good to be true, but it's not. It is true. And we must believe it. So we ask you for grace to believe it. We know that even our ability to believe is by your grace. So we ask for your grace to believe it. Ask your uh, spirit to cleanse our hearts of doubt and to enable faith. Jesus, we thank you for giving yourself for our sins. And we thank you for the opportunity now to celebrate communion together as a church body. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.